Welcome to the podcast of Vertical Life Church. We hope and pray these messages encourage and challenge you to find your glorious purpose in Christ Jesus. For more information, visit us on the web at www.vlchurch.tv. Amen. Welcome back to Michigan. Actually, welcome back for us. We were gone last week. I uh, appreciate all of you that prayed for us. Uh, it was a great time just to get away. I so much appreciate Chris and those that filled in for us. Uh, can we give Chris a hand for bringing the word last week? And uh, also thankful for uh, Josh Barber from Cornerstone Church in Highland, Michigan. Our, our friends at Cornerstone uh, help us out whenever we have to get away. And Tony and I both have to be gone. They're, they willingly send some of their team to come. And I appreciate Josh and his heart. He has such a servant's heart for the body of Christ. I really appreciate that. And, uh, and last week we got to watch the message online. And I appreciate Chris talking about prophecy. And uh, something that spoke to me really is I was talking about how we don't really focus on the kairos moments what god has called us to in the here and now we're really busy waiting for jesus to return and looking forward to return but we forget about the mission the time that we're in right now and the impact we can have in the lives of those who are far from god through preaching the gospel in the here and now and so i really appreciate that word um that uh he brought i want to give you a little snapshot uh and he i think he mentioned this last week this vacation was the first vacation my wife and I took by ourselves longer than just like an overnight stay in seven years. Uh, well, actually longer than that, 17 years really. The first time we, we left was our honeymoon. The second time we left was last week. So uh, we've had a couple overnights here or there, but this is the first week-long vacation we had to ourselves. We went down to sunny Florida at the recommendation of some of our great friends, and we just had a blast and this was kind of a, an unnerving thing for me because we haven't done this in a long time. And, and uh, you got to work things out like at the church. Is everything covered? Like financially, is everything covered at home? And, and God was so faithful just reminding us that this wasn't our idea. This was his idea. Uh, we were going to use our tax return for our spending money because this year we got one. Praise God. And, uh, and so we were going to use that for our spending money. But yeah, our tax return hasn't even come yet. And so we're like, okay, we booked our trip because, you know, with the COVID relief and Uncle Sam and all that, we're like, oh, we booked the trip. We just didn't have any money to spend when we got down there. And God put it on a few people's hearts to bless us financially out of nowhere. And we had all the spending money that we needed. It was pretty awesome. Uh, we booked the airplane, and, uh, and we tried to book early so we could get our seat assigned together. And on the way down, our seats weren't together. And so we're like, oh, God, it would be really awesome if our seats could get put together. And so when we get there, you know, they tried to check, and they really couldn't do anything about it. But they said, just see if you can switch with somebody when you're down there and so or when you're on the plane. And, and so the first plane we took, we were able to switch and sit together. And then the second time, uh, the second plane, our connection from Charlotte to Florida, they were able to seat us together. And, uh, and one of the things we prayed for was simply, simply god if there's anybody you would want to encounter or use us to minister to like don't let us be just into ourselves this week let us be aware of what you're doing and uh, and god said to me he's like your problem is is you always look for somebody to minister to and so i want you to rest but if there's a person i'll highlight them in that connection flight we sat down to this guy who was coming back from a birthday weekend with the guys 
And uh, we had a great conversation with him, and God and the Holy Spirit moved. There was a God moment there. It was just very special. And so God was just reminding us over and again that this wasn't really our idea. It was his idea. And so I'm thankful for those of you that prayed for us because it was really a time of refreshing and rest. And it also helped that when we got to the airport in Florida— that the uh, manager of the rental car station was having a heck of a time, I guess, because there was a long line. And uh, she, as soon as we got up there, she's like, oh, we're so sorry for the long line. And we're like, what long line? We just assumed this was normal. And they're like, we think you're doing a great job. She's like, thank you. I appreciate that. Now, do you want a discount on a rental car? And we got to cruise around in a Mustang convertible, my wife's favorite car for the week at an incredibly low discount. So there was blessings all over it. So I give God so much uh, blessing for that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, thank you. Um, and uh, is everyone okay temperature-wise in here? It's a little cool in here today. I heard last week it was really hot. So it's official. Michigan is bipolar. So uh, I appreciate you being here. And those that, that were overly warmed last week and decided to come back, we really appreciate you today. We're in week 32 of this journey through the Bible, and we started uh, two weeks ago a study on the Feast of Israel, looking how these feasts that God commanded Israel to observe weren't just things to do. They had prophetic significance in regards to Jesus, the Messiah. And before we really get into the the next feast today, I I want to just kind of discuss two concepts with you. You may have heard this before, you may not, but when you're studying the Bible, especially prophecy in relating to how the Old Testament connects to the New Testament, there's two really uh, important concepts you need to keep in mind as you read this scripture. The first is typology. Somebody say typology. Typology. This is a way to interpret and discern prophecy. The difference between typology and a normal prophecy is when you read a prophecy from a prophet, often they'll be speaking to someone, a dignitary, a city, a land, and they'll give a plain and simple word like, God in three days is going to destroy this city. It's like what Jonah said to the Nineveh. You know, they, if you, your wickedness, you're going to die. God is going to kill you. And then the manifestation of that would be an astrological event, a cataclysmic event, or a battle that would destroy the city. And that's how you know the word was fulfilled. Typology is just as prophetic. It just works a little differently. Rather than there being a direct word, here's what's going to happen and how it's going to be fulfilled The story itself, the characters involved, and the circumstance involved is the prophecy. And then it's fulfilled later in the New Testament, and you can see how the two things are connected. So it works a little differently. You don't have a direct, thus saith the Lord, but you do have the fulfillment in the story or the point or the theme that's being revealed in the story. Uh, Typology is used as a prophetic metaphor of what would be fulfilled. A great way to look at this is 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 47. Here's what Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says, the scriptures tell us the first man, Adam, became a living person. But the last Adam, that is, who's he talking about? That is Christ is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, but then the spiritual body comes later. So Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. I bet if you read the story of, of Adam and Eve in Genesis, you don't read about Adam and think, that's Jesus. But what Adam represents is what Jesus would fulfill. So Adam is the first 
human being God created. He's the first, the very first man. God created him. Jesus is the second that God created. Now, Jesus was pre-existent before time. God created him when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and he took the form of a human being inside the mother's womb. So Jesus is the second Adam, the second only to be created by God's very own hand. Where Adam failed, Jesus was victorious. So the first Adam brought sin and death into the world. The second Adam brought everlasting life into the world. That's how typology works. The story gives the revelation, and in the New Testament, we see the fulfillment. We can also look at similar stories like Abraham and Isaac, how we discussed this a couple weeks ago, how Abraham brings Isaac to the top of the mountain, and before he's able to sacrifice his son, God provides the lamb to sacrifice instead of Isaac. It doesn't say there, and this is what Messiah will do when he comes, right? But we look at what happened in that story and what Jesus fulfilled, and we can see how the two correlate. This is typology, and the Bible is filled with typological examples and revelations. So the type is the prophecy. The anti-type is the fulfillment. These are how these things work together. The second concept we need to understand is the now but not yet reality. Somebody say now but not yet. So how can something both be now but not yet? That seems like a contradiction. But this is also a theme in Scripture. We can look at this in the way the Old Testament Hebrews were waiting for the Messiah to come, and they were looking for some specific signs for his coming. They were looking for him to be a son of David, that he would reign on David's throne, that the whole world would be under this kingdom, that the whole world would worship God and God alone, that the lion would lie down with the lamb, and many other prophecies that they were looking at for the coming of Messiah and what Messiah would accomplish. Yet Jesus says about the kingdom, so if we look at the Old Testament prophecies, we can see those things haven't ha happened yet. Does anybody feel comfortable sleeping next to a lion? Right? No. Yeah, I wouldn't either. Matter of fact, neither does the lamb. So we know those things haven't happened yet. In Luke 17, 21, here's what Jesus says about the kingdom. He says, you won't be able to say, here it is or it's over there, for the kingdom of God is what? Already among you. So they're waiting for the kingdom, but yet Jesus says, it's already here. It's already among you. So how can they be waiting for it and it still be here. This is the already but not yet concept. We see both a spiritual and physical fulfillment of prophetic revelation. There's this dual nature. Uh, if you think about Matthew 24, as his disciples come to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, what are the signs of your coming? Like, we've been taught all this stuff. What are going to be the signs of your, of your coming, the kingdom coming? Jesus doesn't say, chill out, guys. It's already here. He actually goes back and quotes the Old Testament. In the prophecies that they grew up knowing. So he's really, he said two different things. He said the kingdom is coming in the future, but yet it's already here. There's a dual nature for the kingdom. There is a now, there are aspects of the kingdom that are in place now because of the coming of Christ and the Holy Spirit, but there are still future prophecies waiting to be fulfilled because the kingdom is also not yet. Does that make sense? Right, so keeping that in mind, Here's where we are looking at the feast today, 
the Feast of the Harvest in Numbers chapter 28, verses 26 through 31. It's also called the Feast of the First Fruits. We're going to read the passage in Numbers, and then we're going to jump to the parallel passage in Leviticus, because they both give us a little bit different instruction. In Numbers 28, 26 through 31, here's what the Lord tells Moses. It says, At the festival of harvest, or first fruits, when you present the first of your new grain to the Lord, you must call an official day for a holy assembly. You may do no ordinary work on that day. Present a special burnt offering on that day as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. It will consist of two young bulls, one ram, and seven one-year-old male lambs. These will be accompanied by grain offerings of choice flour, moistened with olive oil, six quarts with each bull, four quarts with the ram, and two quarts with each of the seven lambs. Also, offer one male goat to purify yourselves and make yourselves right with the Lord. Prepare these special burnt offerings along with their liquid offerings in addition to the regular burnt offering and its accompanying grain offering. Be sure that all the animals you sacrifice have no defects. Leviticus chapter 23 is the parallel passage. Here's what the Lord says to Moses. He says, Give the following instructions to the people of Israel. When you enter the land I'm giving you, and you harvest its first crops, somebody say first crops. Make sure you're tracking with me. Bring the priest a bundle of grain from the first cutting of your grain harvest. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest will lift it up before the Lord so it may be accepted on your behalf. On that same day, you must sacrifice a one-year-old male lamb with no defects as a burnt offering to the Lord. With it, you must present a grain offering consisting of four quarts of choice flour moistened with olive oil. It will be a special gift, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You must also offer one quart of wine as a liquid offering. For verse 14, do not eat any bread or roasted grain or fresh kernels on that day until you bring this offering to your God. This is a permanent law for you. It must be observed from generation to generation wherever you live. So we're not really going to get into the sacrifices. We touched some of that during the Leviticus. But what I want you to see is really four things out of these two passages. Number one, the feast of first fruits was a feast of the harvest. So they were cultivating the ground to bring forth crops. When they uh, brought the crops in, they had to give a portion, the first portion of those crops to the Lord. It was a special offering, number two, of first fruits. This special offering required the normal sacrifices they would give any other time in order to make the person acceptable to the Lord in order to offer this offering of first fruits. Number three, the offering must be the first fruits, the first gleaning of the harvest. Not just the first harvest, but just a portion. The very first crops you cut had to be the very crops you offered to the Lord, and then they would get to enjoy the rest of the harvest. And number four, before any of the first fruit offering was given, they could not eat any grains or bread from what was harvested. Before this offering was given, they couldn't enjoy any of the benefits until the first fruit offering was made. They weren't able to partake in the blessings or the fruit of their labor, which is really significant. What's interesting is this really threefold aspect of the feasts that we're looking at in the life of Israel. The first thing that these feasts represent or commemorate are actual events in the life of Israel. Like the Passover actually happened in Egypt as they, before they crossed the Red Sea. The Feast of Unleavened Bread that we talked about last time as the removal of the yeast actually took place as they were removing, being removed from the wickedness of Egypt and being brought into covenant with God. So we have these representations of what actually happened in Israel. 
they also represent Jesus Christ and what he would accomplish us, for us on the cross, Jesus being our Passover lamb. But thirdly, as we discovered, they act as a type or a foreshadowing of specific events in the timeline of history leading to the end of days or the actual end of times. And even down to the very day, these events would take place or the order in which they would take place. So again, the Passover was an event, but it was also the prophetic revelation of Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, again, symbolizing the removal of sin, the conquering of sin and death, the deliverance of sin of all call on the name of the Lord, um, that came the very next day after the Passover. So we have the death of Christ on the cross, the Passover. The very next day, we have the unleavened bread in the order of these feasts. Passover was to begin on Friday. Do you, you guys ever think about this? Like, how do we get Jesus being risen on the third day if he died on Friday? Do you ever think about that? Like, these are questions, like, unbelievers ask you. Be like, yeah, Jesus rose on the third day. He died on Friday. How do you get three out of two? You know, the thing about the Israelites is they actually start their days the night before. So Thursday evening is actually the beginning of Friday. And so Passover began Thursday evening. It would be Thursday evening through Friday day. Friday night would begin the Sabbath on Saturday and vice versa. So when you look at the actual the calendar, the lunar calendar of the Israelites, there's three days. Jesus rose on the third. Thursday to Friday is one. Friday to Saturday is two. Saturday to Sunday is three. Make sense? It's pretty interesting. So if you think about Passover, Jesus is arrested at night, Thursday night, dies midday on Friday to coincide with the sacrifice. He's buried, and on the third day, he rises from the dead. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was to be celebrated on the Sabbath immediately following the Passover. So the Passover is Friday. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is Saturday. Did you catch when the Feast of First Fruits is supposed to be celebrated? Look at Leviticus 23, verse 11. What's it say? On the day after the Sabbath. What day is after Saturday? Sunday, right? So we have the Passover, unleavened bread, and the Feast of First Fruits, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says, the priest will lift it up. Who offered the priest to the Ro or Jesus to the Romans? It was the priests. They turned Jesus over to the Romans to be sacrificed. They took the blame on themselves. They offered Jesus up to be crucified. And the day after the Sabbath was the lifting up of the first fruits. And we know this is speaking of the resurrection because Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 23 says, Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. Amen? Praise God. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, the first fruits of the harvest. Then all who belong to Christ when he comes back. So there's this dual nature. He was raised first of the harvest. He is the first fruits, the best part of the harvest. He was the first to be raised. But if you think about this, there's more to the harvest than just the first fruits. Right? We, if we offered Jesus all we had and we had nothing left over, we'd be starving all, all season, right? So there was a bunch left over. 
But we see that there's a dual nature in this harvest. Matthew 27, 50 through 53. This is a passage that's not normally preached. We usually kind of skim over this at Easter time. But I want you to see what happened after the first fruits were offered to the Lord. This is Jesus hanging on the cross. He says, Then Jesus shouted out again. He released his spirit. At the moment the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, the earth shook, the rocks split apart, and the tombs were opened, and the bodies of many godly men and women who died were raised from the dead. They left the cemetery when? After Jesus' resurrection, went into the holy city of Jerusalem and appeared to many people. So Jesus was the first to rise from the dead. He's the first fruits, but then what happened? The rest of the harvest came in. The saints of old, the Old Testament believers, those who died in the Lord waiting for ultimate redemption in Messiah, those who are right with God, were waiting for the Messiah to bring in the kingdom. Jesus goes into the grave, pulls them out of the power of the enemy. After he comes up, they come up too. Such a miraculous thing. And what do they do? They go and testify to everyone, y'all, you have no idea where I've been for thousands of years. And what Jesus just did, it was awesome. That guy in the, with the little red pitchfork that's been terrorizing everybody, Jesus has a bigger stick. I'm just going to tell you. He has a bigger stick. It was an awesome, awesome event. And many believe when it says, and he led captivity captive, when he ascended, he brought these Old Testament saints with them, and that's what we see pictured in heaven as the mighty crowd worshiping, praising the Lord and from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And there are clues in Scripture to indicate when Jesus ascended that these are those that he took with him. So the resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment of the first fruits offering, but there is also a mystery of the harvest. Paul alludes to that in 1 Corinthians 15, that there's an order to this resurrection that needs to be understood as we're looking at end-time events because the first fruit offering falls under not only a typological uh, concept, this representation, but also a now but not yet concept. So we understand Jesus, the first fruits, was now. There was, there was this harvest of believers that was risen from the dead at the time of the resurrection of Christ, but there's also a not yet to be fulfilled in the future. Something I'd want to call your attention to in Matthew chapter 9, something Jesus said to his disciples, which also happens to be a passage of Scripture that was texted out to our youth this week. I just want to just say I am, I am honored to serve amongst people who have a passion to see our youth grow in their relationship with Christ, who put their heart and soul into it. And every week, uh, a text message of a Scripture verse for them to meditate on and think about gets texted out to all the kids in our youth group. It's such an awesome thing. Here's what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 9. He says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into the field. So you got to think, this is where asking questions is important, right? He's saying, pray to the Lord, pray to God, the Lord of the harvest, to send more workers. Well, if more workers are needed, who are the first workers? Who are the first? Who are the ones that have already been sowing the seed, cultivating the soil? Well, we can see the 
the connection with who he said the harvest was. It was those that he had compassion on, right? He looked at the crowd, and he had compassion as a shepherd looking at sheep without a shepherd. And, and he says, look, the, the harvest is great. The harvest is plenteous, but there's not enough people. Those that came before, those that were sowing seed, the prophets and the faithful of the Old Testament, they were the workers cultivating the soil so that the harvest at this time would be ready. And so he's telling his disciples, pray and ask God for more because there, there, there's more that can be done even right now. There's more that could be brought in leading up to his death and resurrection. Now, what's awesome is that, is that if you don't remember that the Bible originally didn't have verses or chapter markings, that it's one stream of consciousness, moves from one thought to the next. You might miss this, but immediately at the beginning of chapter 10, that's the last verse in chapter 9, you go into chapter 10, Jesus, in Matthew 10, 1, it says, Jesus calls his 12 disciples together, gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and heal every kind of disease and illness. Jesus says, the harvest is great. We need more workers. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send more workers. And then he calls his disciples together, gives them authority, and then sends them out to do kingdom ministry in a lost and hurting world. They joined Jesus in this ministry leading up to his death and resurrection. It, it's amazing that we pray about all sorts of things, but sometimes God wants you to pray so that your heart will actually come in line with what he's already asking you to do and what he's already equipped you to accomplish. So we know by what Jesus is saying, there's more yet to be harvested. Why else would he ask them to join him? And why else after his resurrection— after the bringing in of the harvest, would he then pour out his spirit and send his disciples into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature? Because yet the first harvest is not the only harvest. There's more to be harvested. You see, from the time of Jesus' resurrection until now, beloved, we have been in planting mode. The church is in planting mode. We're cultivating soil. We're sowing seeds because there is yet a future harvest to come in. Now to really understand the full prophetic meaning of the harvest feast, we also have to look at another mystery, the mystery of the rains found in Joel chapter 2. This is a very popular passage of scripture, not for this passage, but for the passage that comes after it in regarding to the last days. But in Joel chapter 2, God begins to reveal how he's going to bring restoration to the people of God in the land of Israel. They, they had been exiled. Babylon came in and destroyed their nation. And, and God is saying, there's a future time of restoration coming, and here's how I'm going to do it. It's centered around the ushering in of the Messianic era. In Joel chapter 2, verse 21, he tells the people through the prophet, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green, and the trees bear its fruit, or the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain. Somebody say early rain. He's given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain. Somebody say the latter rain. So here we have Israel's decimated. They're both spiritually and physically destroyed. But God said there's a time coming where I'm going to bring res restoration. I'm going to vindicate you, and I'm going to do it through the bringing of 
the early and the latter rain. What's interesting here is the fruitfulness of the land will be associated with the restoration and vindication of the people of God. The land where they lived, the land of Israel, was the dwelling place of God. That's where he chose to put his name, where they worshipped him, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the temple was. It was the place of fellowship and kingdom authority, the land of Israel at this time. What's interesting is that the actual land of Israel, after 70 A.D., when the temple was destroyed, the Romans laid waste to it. From 70 A.D. on, the land itself was parched and dry and couldn't grow a thing. Matter of fact, Mark Twain is on record visiting the land of Israel and saying, what happened to this place? It must be cursed of God. Nothing grows here. Who would want to live here? That actually continued on until 1948 when Israel became a nation. The people started returning to the land. At that time, the fruit began to grow. The land began to produce. Israel began to move back in. The land began to become fruitful again. It's a fulfillment of the precursor to the messianic age. But what was the vindication of God's people? To be vindicated means to be cleared of blame or suspicion. When were the people of God cleared of blame and suspicion? When was their guilt taken away? When Jesus was nailed to the cross as the Passover lamb. That's when the God vindicated his people. When he took our place as the Passover, and then immediately following on the third day, the first fruit offering was lifted up to the Lord. It's interesting here that he mentions that the tree, not trees, but the tree began to bear fruit. More importantly, the fig tree. They just discovered in Israel a settlement in the area that the fig tree or figs were the probably the very first cultivated culturally cultivated um, food source in human history. That ancient peoples would actually gather figs and cultivate figs as the, as the first like agricultural product in human history. That's pretty fascinating. But the fig tree is also symbolic for the nation of Israel over and again in Scripture. If you remember, Jesus cursed the fig tree and it withered. And he said, may you never bear fruit again. There is, there's theological messaging happening here in regards to the nation of Israel. But here, the prophecy is that at the time of vindication, the fig tree would begin to bear its fruit. Not only the fig tree, but also the vine would bear fruit. If you remember, Jesus said something about a vine in the New Testament. He says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me, you'll what? Bear fruit. That's right. So he's saying the nation of Israel is going to, the fig tree is going to bloom. What's the fruit of the tree? What has everyone been waiting for? The coming of the Messianic era, the coming of the Messiah. Jesus is going to come through the nation of Israel. And then all those who place their faith and trust in him will get grafted to the vine. And those who remain in him will begin to bear fruit. It's a revelation of this Messianic era being brought in as Joel is revealing to us here. But what is the element or the mechanism to bring in this fruitfulness of the land, this harvest of the nation of Israel? Joel tells us it is the revelation of the rains, the early and the latter rains. 
two different reigns. And this is a uh, fulfillment of the fellowship of two people groups, the Old and New Testament saints with two periods of time, the Old and New Testament periods coming together to bring about the fruitfulness of the land and the fruitfulness of the vine. Now, think about this. What would also come at the time of the first fruit offering? Not just the first fruits, but the whole harvest. Not just the fruit that was offered, but the harvest. There is, if there is a first fruit offering, then there must also be second fruit. There is a second harvest that is brought in, and the sign of this restoration coming to Israel, the people of God, the nation, the place where God dwells, this time of vindication, a coming harvest that the rains are bringing in will bring not just the first harvest, but also the second harvest. And it's all tied to the coming of the Lord. And we see this in Hosea chapter 6, verse 3. The prophet Hosea says, Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out assures the dawn, and he will come to us as what? As the showers, as the rain, spring rains that water the earth. So the coming of the Lord, the coming of Messiah is going to come as the rains. There is both early and latter rains. What, this is where getting into the mindset of the ancient Hebrews is so important because if you lived at this time in the nation of Israel, you would recognize that with two rains also come two harvest seasons. There's two times to bring in the crops. And the early rain, the word for rain here in reference to the early rain in Joel is the Hebrew word yore. This word means a lighter, more delicate type of rain. According to oneforisrael.org, these early rains are reason to be glad after a hot and dry summer, and the ground can be broken up ready to work in the fields. So their summers are blistering hot. Their ground is parched, cracked. Look, it almost looks like a barren wasteland. These lighter rains come in, and they begin to soften the ground. The word for the former rains, yore, comes from the same root as a word to mean to shoot, cast, or to teach. Like an arrow being shot to its target or information being directly delivered from teacher to pupil, the yore rains are sent down to soften up the ground, ready for the first round of planting. If you think about the ministry of Christ, his first coming, what did he do? He came like the early rains. He came teaching in parables, cultivating and softening hearts, drawing hearts to be ready to be harvested. Through his ministry of healing, he drew people to himself. The hard hearts of those who'd been used and abused by a religious system became ready to receive the truth that would ultimately set them free. This is his first coming. The early rains, the cultivation of the soil, the three-year ministry of Jesus was a season of sowing cultivating the soil as the Spirit of God watered his ministry and the harvest came in on resurrection day with Jesus being the first fruits raised to new life as well as many others raised to proclaim the time of restoration had come. The messianic era has finally come in. It's powerful. This began on resurrection Sunday. But again, we logically assume if his resurrection was the first fruits along with the first rain, what is the latter rain? What will the second harvest be like? Well, in Exodus 23, Moses tells us about two harvests connected with the Feast of First Fruits. In 23:16, he says, You shall keep the Feast of Harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field, and you shall keep the Feast of, what's that say? The Feast of 
ingathering at the end of the year. So the Feast of First Fruits happens at the beginning. Ingathering happens at the end when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. There are two feasts connected with the harvest, the first fruits and the ingathering, along with the two rains. The first fruits comes at the beginning, ingathering towards the end. Now, the latter rain is actually a different word other than yore, according to Israel, oneforisrael.org. The latter rains is also known as the malkosh. This was necessary for the ripening of their barley and grain. The latter rains, or malkosh, are much harder rains that would have just caused flooding and devastation if they had come earlier on dusty, dry ground. If the ground was not prepared by the early rains, there would be destruction and not harvest. That's significant. So there's little to no rain in the summer. Everything's dying off. The land is parched. The gentle rain moves in. It causes easy cultivation and preparation. If it had not, the latter rains would have brought about destruction. Now, since the resurrection of Jesus, the first fruits in the early harvest, again, we as a church have been in this season of planting. We're sowing seed. Jesus refers to this in, in many parables. We're preaching the gospel, ministering through the Holy Spirit, Right in the same passage that Joel is talking about the, the early and latter rains, if you keep reading, he will say, In the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your old men will prophesy. Your young men will dream dreams. On your sons and daughters alike, men and women alike, I'm going to pour out my spirit. He's talking about in the end of times, the spirit of God is going to be poured out. This is significant especially as we look at the culmination of the end of days, especially in Revelation chapter 20, for a harvest that comes in at the end of time, the time um, that many call the last days. It's a time a harvest comes in during a time of greater intensity. Again, the early rains are light and comforting. The latter rains are more difficult and torrential. Scholars call this end times the great tribulation or the end of days or the day of the Lord. Now, beginning in Revelation 13, we read about the overthrow of Satan. Satan is finally defeated at the second coming of Christ. He's bound for a thousand years. The world is rid of this nuisance that's been terrorizing us for, for generations and generations. And he is cast into prison after many years of intense persecution on the people of God through the agency of this one called the Antichrist or the Beast, who is given dominion over the whole earth. Revelation 13, 5 through 10 says this, Then the beast was allowed to speak great blasphemies against God. He was given authority to do whatever he wanted for 42 months. He spoke terrible words of blasphemy against God, slandering his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And the beast was allowed to wage war against who? God's holy people. And to what? Conquer them. And he was given authority to rule over every tribe, people, language, and nation. And all the people who belong to this world worship the beast. They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life that belongs to the lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. This is the Spirit of God saying, what I'm about to say, you need to discern this. Anyone who's destined for prison will be taken to prison. Anyone destined to die by the sword will die by the sword. And here's the important word. This means God's holy people must what? Endure persecution patiently and remain faithful. 
There is a time of difficulty coming on the earth, not just for the earth, but for the people of God. Revelation 14, 9 through 13 has a similar vein. This is when God throws the beast and the false prophet over to uh, their ultimate destination. It says that the third angel followed them, shouting, Anyone who worships the beast and his statue or accept his mark on the forehand or on the hand must drink the wine of God's anger. It's been poured out full strength into God's cup of wrath, and they'll be tormented with fire and burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. The smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. They will have no relief day or night, for they worshiped the beast and his statue and accepted the mark of his name. Verse 12, this means, what's it say? That God's holy people must endure persecution patiently, obeying his commands and maintaining their faith in Jesus. In the last days, there's going to be a war. Which kingdom do I serve, Christ or the world? Those who choose Christ will be persecuted. We must hold on, endure, and maintain our faith in the Lord. And then I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this down too. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they are blessed indeed, for they will rest from their hard work, for their good deeds follow them. What is their hard work? Their hard work is working in the harvest field. Sowing seed during a more rigorous downpour. See, the downpour is greater, I believe, at the end of days because the Spirit of God no longer rests on one man, Jesus. But it now rests on everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. The first rain, the early rain, is a light rain to prepare the way. The second rain is of even stronger rain for those who are prepared. See, many people fear the last days because of persecution and difficulties foretold. But what the mystery of the harvest and the rains reveal is that the latter rain is more intense than the early rains. Yes, we will be persecuted in greater and greater ways than ever before. And I believe, truly, that this persecution comes... Because even though there is greater persecution in the last days, there will also be a greater outpouring of God's Spirit. Which means greater encounters with God, greater manifestations of His presence, greater manifestations and encounters with His goodness and His love, and greater chances to see revivals and more significant move of God in our day. There is a pursuit, there is an outpour that God is pouring out in the last days. The enemy is going to increase his attacks in the last days because God is increasing his power and his presence in the world. If you think, think about it, I mentioned this earlier. The nation of Iran, Christianity is not allowed. No missionaries can go into Iran, but yet they have the fastest growing church in the world. It used to be China. It's now Iran. And many of them are coming to Christ because they're seeing visions of Jesus and recognizing that Muhammad ain't the way. It's remarkable what's happening, the way the Spirit of God is moving across the world. And why, why is this going to happen? Why, why is there a greater outpour, a greater increase in His power and presence? I believe it's because the Father is answering the Son's prayer. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that more people will join in the harvest field. 
The Father's raising up more workers. So we're sowing seeds, saving more people than ever before, not in a localized way, but a global scale. And the enemy is also raising up even greater opposition to try to slow us down or even stop us altogether. So this time of difficulty will be a time the, unlike the world has never seen. Uh, and the enemy has set its sights on the people of God. This will be a very difficult season. Unfortunately, uh, there's, there's many like different... like timelines and things that people have taught in the about the last days and there have been many books like left behind that talk about the church coming out and missing all the scary stuff that's not found in the bible anywhere i i hope it's true but we just read two places where god's holy people must endure persecution for their faith in christ this is something coming on the world we need to be prepared for the enemy is going to set his sights on the people of God. This will be a very difficult season. But beloved, it's been written and declared by the Lord that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. One day our Lord will return and with him there'll be salvation and healing in his wings. There is an appointed day at the last great harvest of souls. The ingathering of all who believe all who've placed their faith and trust in Christ, it will come to pass through the same power that raised Jesus from the dead that lives in us will raise us too through his resurrection power to be alive forevermore. There'll be no more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more little annoyance with the red pitchfork. We'll be with the Lord forever and forever. And on that day, Revelation chapter 20, 4 through 6 says this. John sees a vision in heaven. He says, I saw thrones and the people sitting on them had been given the authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for their testimony about Jesus and for proclaiming the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his statue, nor accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They all came to life again. They're resurrected. And they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the first resurrection. And the rest of the dead did not come back to life the second resurrection until the thousand years had ended. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. For them, the second death holds no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. The death has no power. Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 says to comfort each other with these words that there's a day Christ is going to return and we will forever be with the Lord again when he rescues the world. The mystery of the harvest, the mystery of the rains reveals two comings of Jesus, two harvests of the saints, two resurrections in the last days, the resurrection of the righteous and the people of God to life and reward and the resurrection of the wicked to everlasting judgment. The rains are easy on the first because they were prepared, but detrimental to the second because they were not prepared. And the revelation of the harvest shows us, beloved, now we are in that phase, the time after Christ's resurrection, as we are continuing to sow and plow fields for the kingdom of God, waiting on his return. The, the first fruits offering is a now, but not yet fulfillment. He was resurrected, but there's a time when the resurrection will be fulfilled when both the early and latter rains will come in, the first and second comings of Christ. And this is our blessed hope that we will be resurrected with Christ at his glorious appearing. I just want to show you real quickly that there are really seven mysteries to the harvest and the rains. Again, there are two harvests, the first fruits and the end gatherings. There are two rains, 
for the harvest. They're early in the latter. There are two restorations, the land of Israel and spiritual Israel. There are two events, the Jewish feast and Lord's resurrection. There are two comings, his incarnation or his first coming, and then also the second coming at the end of time. There are two harvest seasons, the teaching and preparing, and also the tribulation and reaping. And there are two end-time resurrections, the first of the righteous and the second of the unrighteous. There are seven aspects to the mystery of the, of the harvest and the rains. And the number seven is the number of completion or perfection, both sp- spiritually and physically. The fullness of the now and not yet harvest feast will be completed, and so will God's plan involving the resurrection of Jesus in the lives of those who believe. Now how this affects us today is that we still have a job to do. The band would come forward and begin to play as we go into a time of response. I just want to encourage you that yes, we are living in the latter days and the latter rains. The Spirit of God has been poured out, is being poured out. The early rain has come and the first harvest has been completed, but there's another harvest yet to come, the one that we are working and waiting for, the ingathering of all believers. And it's us, up to us. I want you to hear me. It's up to us to determine how much reward our Lord will receive when he returns. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he'll send more workers. It's up to us to determine the reward that he'll receive when he returns. And I want to give him a great reward don't you? Don't you want to meet him in the air in the clouds with your hands full and not your em- pockets empty? I want to give Jesus the reward he's due. Hebrews 12 says that he despised the cross, disregarded its shame. He was able to overlook all the horrific things that he went through. Why? Because of the joy awaiting him. I believe Jesus hasn't even experienced that joy yet. There's joy in the Father's presence. But there's a joy yet to come, the day where the fullness of the harvest is brought in. And you and I are part of the harvest workers. We're a part of the field, the ones who get to cultivate and plant seed so when he comes, he can receive a great reward. I want to give him the greatest reward that I possibly can. And beloved, we've been called into the fields. Why did Jesus ask the disciples to pray to the Lord of the harvest? Again, it was to get their hearts in line with his heart and his will for those who are far from God. There is an appointed time when he's going to return. And whatever side of the fence you're on at that point, that's it. There's no second chance. There's life for the beloved. There's death for the wicked, for those who've rejected Christ. And I pray that we'd always be a place where Jesus is preached, the Spirit is followed, seeds are sown, and the harvest comes in. That's why we're encouraging our prayer team when we gather for prayer up front, 
We ask our prayer team, ask the Lord, what are you saying over this person? We want to hear the voice of the Spirit and pray what the Spirit is praying. We want to partner with God. We want to pray for healing. We want to take that authority Jesus gave his disciples to work in the harvest, and we want to use it to build up and strengthen the church. But more than just when we gather here, we want you to take it out there and recognize that wherever you are, in whatever realm, whatever place, whether it be at your place of work, at a club, at a family gathering, at the grocery store, wherever you are, that is your harvest field. That's your place to sow and to reap because together we're workers in the field. And what a day of rejoicing it will be when the harvest fully comes in. What a day of rejoicing it will be when we all see Jesus because we'll sing and we'll shout the victory. We'll sing and we'll shout the victory. I leave you with this. Who you taking with you? Who you taking with you? Whose life are you willing to say, huh? You can make it on your own. Or who are you gonna say, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sow in your life. You're worth it. You're worth it. Because that's really the ultimate decision. When we pass by people every day and we don't choose to do what God is asking us to do and follow the Spirit. That's the ultimate choice. It's, I'm not going to love you today, but I'll love you today. I, I remember atheist uh, pen teller in a video, he said, how much do you have to hate somebody to know the truth and then not tell them? If it's really real that there's a judgment coming, how much do you have to hate somebody not to tell them? And my prayer is that we would fall so madly in love with Jesus that we wouldn't even worry about what they think. We just say, hey, I know this guy. He's going to change your life. Why don't you come and see? Come and meet him. And that's the call to us today, to go into all the world and how bring in a harvest, the reward that's due the Lord. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for insight into the prophetic revelation. We thank you, God, that it's not just a tradition for an ancient people in an ancient time, but it is a revelation that's applicable to us in the here and now to reveal to us what you're doing. You're not just waiting in heaven, twirling your thumbs, waiting for the Father to say, okay, it's time. You're working actively to save as many people as you can, to, to lead as many people into saving faith and trusting in Christ, to become part of the harvest, part of the family to join you in the fields so then when that day comes there's a great reward and a great celebration of those who are finding life in Christ Jesus God I pray for Christians everywhere not just here but all over the world those who have worshiped at the altar of fear rather than faith those that are kneeling at the altar of culture and fitting in and being cool rather than rising up with the call of God on their lives to go into all the world and preach the gospel. God, I pray for those, and, and even just in my own life, feeling that tearing of being involved in, in just what I want to do and filling, fulfilling my selfish desires rather than remembering there is a purpose for my life. I have life and breath to make Jesus famous wherever I am. 
God, I pray that the dead church would arise just as you rose from the dead, that the sleeper would wake from his sleep. And that passion for the king and passion for the kingdom would set us ablaze again, God. Anoint us afresh. God, the outpour of the Spirit in the last days is greater than the first. God, we receive your Spirit. We receive the outpour. God, fill us up in Jesus' name, not just to the the brim, but even to the overflow. God, dump us out to make room for more. Lord, that we'd be continually filled and continually emptied as we are pouring out into other people's lives. God, that your life would just become evident here in this gathering. And as we leave, we walk in the anointing of those who have been with Jesus. God, I pray for everyone here, those with heavy burdens today, God, that you would confirm your love for them today and your encouragement. But God, I call the church to surrender, to surrender to evangelism, to surrender to sharing Jesus with people. God, that even those that have been fearful, those that have not talked about you to anyone for years, God, that today they would come forward, kneel down before you, and they would surrender again and say, God, I'm going to, from this day forward, I'm going to take as many people with me as I can so that when you come, I can present you a great reward. God, fill us with faith and passion for the kingdom. In Jesus' name. us at Vertical Life Church. We want to say thank you for listening. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please consider making a tax-deductible donation to www.blchurch.tv forward slash give. Thank you and God bless.